America needs more Thomas Jefferson and less Abraham Lincoln. If you think that's true, you're going to love my new book, The Jeffersonian Tradition. It's over 50 essays in defense of Jeffersonian America. So if you look at America today and you think everything has just gone crazy, you're right. And of course, there is a solution to that. So go to Amazon.com or wherever you buy books. Look for The Jeffersonian Tradition. You're going to love it. I guarantee it. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 453. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast. Go to brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. It's a great free gift just for giving that email address, and that's how I'm going to stay in touch with you. So all those social media accounts are there. You give me that email address. You get on my email list. It's a win-win, and I appreciate your support. All right, let's talk about, again, this theme we're talking, you know, looking at this week, which is the... Girondins, the woke Puritan, political Puritans, and how they're affecting things. And I've got a piece today. Again, this is a listener-generated piece. So if, if you want to send me a suggestion, just go to my webpage, shoot me a suggestion on something you'd like to hear. I do read them. I may not reply, but I do read them. This is a listener-generated episode. So when you look at this piece, it's from the Claremont Institute, right? <laughs> this is where it's coming from. Every now and then, the Claremont people get some things right. This is The American Mind. It's the publication of the Claremont Institute, and it's by Joel Kotkin. Interesting enough, the title is Economic Civil War. So the Claremont people are interested in this idea of civil war. You've seen it, we, we, you've seen it in several things they've produced recently. They're concerned about it. The Claremont people, of course, are much more Lincolnian nationalists. They don't like all this diversity and some things. But anyways, you see it. They're afraid. They really are afraid. And you've got Michael Anton saying the same thing. You know, he's, he's got his, his book on how, how we need to save the world and what the, uh, the stakes are, the book The Stakes, and you've got the Flight 93 uh, presidency and these kind of things. So they're, they're certainly concerned about how the left is destroying things in America, but they're focusing on the wrong stuff, which is Lincoln to somehow save it when Lincoln can't do anything like that because the left believes in him too. In fact, they're taking Lincoln's distortion of the Declaration and making it the core part of their belief system. This is the 1619 Project. That's all it is. So how... Well, they they read Lincoln incorrectly. No, they don't. They don't. They're reading how Lincoln actually interpreted things and revolutionized the revolution, as Gary Will says. So this new... This piece... The Economic Civil War. I find interesting. It's a short piece, but because it gets into what's going on in America today. So we've seen the takeover, or at least the attempted takeover, by the political Puritans, the Yankees, as Michael Lynn said, you know, the revenge of the Yankees. We live in, we live in Yankeedom already. It, it's already there. It's been there for a while. We've pointed this out, uh, you know, people on my side of the right, and of course also... Uh, you know, Southerners have pointed out the Yankee takeover. There's a wonderful lecture at Abbeville Institute. 
By the way, if you want to get this podcast or get me five times a week, you can just go to the Abbeville Institute page, abbevilleinstitute.org, and I podcast there once a week as well on all things Southern. But uh, my colleague, Kerry Roberts, pointed this out. And he said, look, if you want to see what, what America, what Yankee America is, just look around. It's what we've got. It's Yankee America. It's their vision of what America should have been. And the neoconservatives, the Claremont people, Michael Lynn, I mean, they're running around like, oh, man, I mean, this is terrible. This is terrible. Well, you helped create all this nonsense. And then you give them, you keep the foot in the door by saying, well, it's a reasonable demand to take down Confederate statues. None of it's reasonable. There's no statue that should ever come down. None of them. I don't care what they are. They were put up at a time for a people. And to remember something important, they shouldn't come down. But this piece is interesting. The subtitle is Inside the Bitter Battle Over America's New Geography. Our New Geography. This is Joel Kotkin. Our national divide is usually cast in terms of ideology, race, climate, and gender. But it might be more accurate to see our national conflict as regional and riven by economic function. Schism is between two ways of making a living, one based in the incorporeal world of media and digital transactions, the other in the tangible world of making, growing, and using real things. So what Kotkin is saying here is there's an economic conflict at stake. We look at this as ideology, race, climate, gender. It's another way of looking at a divide. Linda's saying, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really Yankee culture against everybody else, which I think is the, but I said, it's power. So... If it's the elites against everybody else, you've got digital marketing, you've got these kind of things, you've got, and this creates a certain type of elites. This is, Lynn points out that the technocrats is a certain type of elite. Silicon Valley, I mean, these are elites. And they're on board with Puritanism. They're on board with the political Puritanism. They're on board with Yankeedom. They're on board of all, with all of that. But when you look back to the 1860s, you had everybody was primarily a farmer, but you still had the industrialists. And so what's happening here is these people that are the elites that do some things differently, well, they're, they're at war with everyone else. Donald Trump, the irascible New York developer, focused on the places where the tangible economy was strong. But President Biden convinced enough voters in Heartland states that their economic interests would be taken seriously. Some parts of the Biden agenda, measures to reshore industry, restore supply chains, and to improve basic infrastructure could unify the country across regional lines. So what Kotkin is pointing out here is the real voting block in America, the real block that's going to tip every election, is white working class Americans. Lind is pointing it out and saying these people, the elites are trying to capture these people, but they're also bullying these people into accepting a political Puritanism, and a lot of them won't do it. This is where Biden's enough of the old style to get enough votes. Kamala Harris won't be. Stacey Abrams won't be. They won't get it. They won't be able to capture those votes, and it's not about race at all. It's about how these people look down their nose at these Americans, the deplorables. We know Kamala Harris does. We know Stacey Abrams does. You're not woke enough. You can't be. This is Gwen Stefani being attacked for not being woke enough. And I think they're going to burn themselves out on this, but not till it consumes more. 
Biden's early actions, however, focused on policies that are more popular in Manhattan and Malibu than Midland. Well, this is true because this is how Biden believes that the fringe of his party, the far left, is the most important part to capture. What Kotkin is saying here is, no, 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 that central group is important to capture. Now, Biden's popularity is over 60%. Why? Because he doesn't mean tweet. Even though he's an idiot, even though everything that comes out of his mouth is so jumbled and incoherent, but he's just one of the guys. He's one of us. He's a, from a steel family. Steel town, Pennsylvania. Even though Biden's from Delaware. But he, Pennsylvania, I'm Pennsylvania. He was born in Pennsylvania. But Delaware has been his home for most of his life. This is painfully evident in the administration's early call for tight restrictions on fossil fuel development. President Biden has promised to spend $500 billion each year on abating climate change, about 13% of all federal revenue. Its economic impact estimates... Uh, estimates economist Bjorn Lundberg could reach $5 trillion, more than the entire federal budget. This is not appealing to the center. This is not appealing to the white working class American. That's what Kotkin's getting into here. So you've got this battle going on over the deplorable, between the deplorables and the Northeastern industrialists. Who's going to make all the money here? Well, the guy out there working in the shale field is not going to make money, but the guy that invests in solar farms will, and all the other things that uh, that Biden wants. Other actions like massive new transmit investments or policies that force high-density housing and racial quotas on suburbs may please his base in the media, but are certain to arouse opposition throughout parts of the country where people work in factories, warehouses, farms, mines, and the energy sector, live in lower-density neighborhoods, and value the notion of upward mobility for most Americans. So we're seeing a rural-urban split in America. This is what this piece by Kotkin is getting into, a rural-urban split. Regionalism American style. America has always been a nation of regions and interest groups, often in conflict with each other. Class and economic concerns underlay cultural and political struggles over the revolution and constitution. Not just a Marx can observe that the Civil War involved a conflict between powerful rival economic interests. The slave-driven southern economy rested upon the export of commodities to Britain and the rest of Europe, primarily cotton but also tobacco and other foodstuffs. While the North was an emerging industrial power, his ambition was to displace these same established powers. The Civil War led to a consolidation of power in the great cities of the Northeast and Midwest, and the Second World War shifted influence further, largely to the West Coast. More recently, this ascendancy has been challenged by other states, notably in Texas and the South, which have gained population, wealth, and political influence, while the still-struggling heartland has emerged as the political decider in national elections. So, I mean, this is interesting, I guess. You know, he's saying that we've got, we had these, the war consolidated power. It's true. In the Northeast, this is true. Was the war simply about, uh, I mean, he's saying the war was an economic conflict. It was the the slave-driven South against the industrial North. I mean, so that's a very Beardian way of looking at the conflict. Okay. All right, I mean, that's fine if you want to look at it that way. Other issues, the softer issues weren't as important. It was about money. And so it's still about money. But Biden, of course, is trying to appeal to his, to his base, what he thinks is his base, which is the woke, 
political Puritans. That's who Biden identifies as his base. But what he's missing, and what Kotkin is arguing, he's missing is that it's the Midwest that gave you the election. And now you're ignoring them. And that's dangerous to Joe Biden. Now, what he'll do is he'll try to throw him a bone at some point. He'll shore that up before 2020. Or maybe even before 2022, because it could be a bloodbath for the Democrats in 2022 if they don't. I mean, who knows? It might be a huge landslide for the Democrats in 2022. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But frankly, I mean, if Biden keeps appealing to the far left, he's going to have problems. Trump, in large part due to his flawed character, may have lost too many of those voters to win the election, but the parts of the country that continue to back him, like Texas and the South, remain ascendant. These states were gaining ground in terms of jobs and people before COVID and generally have been rebounding faster than those on the coast. In contrast, the core Biden states, California, New York, New, York, New Jersey, and Illinois, continue to lose people and jobs. Well, this is true. Why? Because those states are blue. They're woke. They're stupid. High tax authoritarian states. People don't want to live in that nonsense. Now, some do. I mean, you know, I even know people who are, uh, you know, good people politically that want to live in these states because they just like it. That's fine. You live where you want to live. You know, if you want to live under it, you live under it. It's your, it's your call. It's your decision. I wouldn't want to do it, but other people do. And they're fine with it. I know some of them will say, well, where am I going to go that's even better? Well, I mean, that's always a question. We know Texas is now, I mean, it's gaining people like crazy. Florida, too. The energy dilemma. Energy represents the single biggest issue dividing our regions. States that produce fossil fuel energy view the idea of rapid decarbonizing of the economy differently than states possessing little such energy or which, as in California's case, fuel too enlightened, feel too enlightened to use it. Except for California, all the major energy-producing states voted for Trump at least once, and have become increasingly Republican over the course of the century. This is, I mean, he's, he's identifying in some ways, he's looking at this, okay, it used to be cotton in industry, now it's energy. Oil, coal. These are the things that these states are looking at, and they're saying, ooh, what's the problem here? We've got an administration, we've got the Green New Deal, which is hostile to us and our jobs. And when you have Pete Buttigieg stand up there and say, well, I mean, certainly we're going to lose jobs, I guess. I mean, these people are just going to have to find another job somewhere. Where are they going to find a job that pays like this? You know, guys that go work in the oil fields and the shale, they're making six figures. Where are they going to find a job without a college degree where you make that kind of money? It's hard work. But where are they going to find it? They're going to go work at Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot? Where, where are they going to go? They're going to go into retail? You build a solar farm, you build it, and then it sits. And I know that there's, you know, there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes there. You build a windmill, and it sits. Oil, you have to continually get out of the ground. Same thing with coal. you got to get it. That creates labor, creates jobs. We can't all sit behind a desk. People need to do stuff. This is where factory workers have long been important. This is where farmers, because you have to go out and actually farm. you got to work. People have to do things. Well, not if you're the Democrats. You just start paying them money to do nothing. That's the universal basic income. We create all these solar farms and all this stuff, and then you just pay people to do nothing. 
From an economic point of view, this allegiance makes sense. Among Biden's first actions was to cancel the Keystone Pipeline with a potential loss of upwards of one, uh, I'm sorry, 10,000 jobs, many of them unionized and concentrated in the heartland. Attempts to squelch fracking, there's already been a ban on new leases on federal lands, could cause major job losses from places like the Rockies, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Oklahoma. In Texas alone, as many as a million good-paying jobs will be lost. Overall, according to the Chamber of Commerce report, a full national ban would cost 14 million jobs, far more than the 8 million lost in the Great Recession, which, with the potential of turning vital smaller towns into instant slums. So this is it. I mean, he's pointing out this energy, that the, the battle over energy is really the new cotton versus industry. It's cotton. I mean, so you got the producers against the technocrats. You know, if you're if you're simply living and you're working online and that's all you do, you don't care how that energy gets there. It could come from a windmill, it could come from a solar panel, it could come from coal, it could come from oil. You don't care. You don't care at all because you don't produce it. As long as the power works and the internet stays on, you're good to go. But for the people that actually have to go out there and get it, or if you go to the grocery store and you get your food, you don't care where that food comes from. You're not a farmer. You live in a whole different world. Most Americans suspect Biden's embrace of a draconian climate agenda will cost jobs and new and view promises of millions of new green energy jobs as stale and bogus. This is true. They may also feel the pain of reduced support for public services like education in states like New Mexico, which depend largely on ore revenues from federal lands. A ban on attempts to regulate and eliminate fracking on private lands, something Vice President Kamala Harris has endorsed, will also cut a prime source of funding for the University of Texas. Green virtue and the salaries of UT's larger progressive faculty may soon collide. It's a disaster waiting to happen. But this is what political puritanism and top-down centralization and Yankeeism does. You have to be orthodox, and part of the orthodoxy is green. It's not really real environmentalism. You look at the Southerners of the 1930s, and I'll take my stand. That was real environmentalism. They were concerned about being good stewards of the environment, keeping the small independent farmer who needed the land. You look at the Callaway family. I mentioned them before with Franklin Roosevelt a couple of episodes ago. You look at the Callaway family in Pine Mountain, Georgia. They were concerned about overstripping land, scientific agriculture. They were concerned about these things. They also created their little nature preserve there because they wanted to show that private individuals could preserve and protect land. So that's real environmentalism. What we're seeing with the left is not real environmentalism. It's something else. It's earth worship in some ways. I mean, it's it's based on uh, this kind of biblical prophecy that the world is going to end if we don't somehow reduce greenhouse, even though we all know this is just a farce. It's about power. It's about money. But, I mean, people fundamentally believe it like they would in the 17th century if they were Puritans and they were involved in that theology. They believe in the Green New Deal theology. It's theology. They believe in woke theology. It's theology to them. You can't, you can't dissuade them of this. This is, this is what they believe. The impact of energy policy goes well beyond oil field and pipeline workers. Energy impacts a broad set of industries, such as manufacturing, agriculture, and transportation. Low energy prices attract 
foreign firms, particularly from Germany, where energy prices are among the highest in the world. Green policies that seek to eliminate fossil fuels have a distinct regional and class dimension. These policies tend to hit those blue-collar industries that depend on resource-based uh, depend on resource-based product. A canceled petrochemical plant in Ohio is a blow not to Washington regulators and San Francisco trustafarians, but blue-collar Midwesterners. States like Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Alabama are between two and three times more dependent on industrial employment than New York, Massachusetts, or even California, all ones industrial powerhouses. So again, we're looking at blue-collar America as the key voting block for the future. What Americans need to start doing is separating rhetoric with action. Biden's action is not necessarily in favor of blue, white blue-collar Americans, or any blue-collar Americans for that matter. It doesn't have to be white. Any blue-collar Americans. A lot of non-white people work in these blue-collar jobs, particularly in places like Alabama and these manufacturing jobs. So they have to separate this stuff. And, but the woke agenda, the culture stuff, is the distraction from the real issue. Just as it's always been. The culture stuff is always a distraction from the real issues. The real issue is usually about money and power. The progressive agenda on climate tends to work against these industries. Ever since California decided to lead the war against climate change in the past decade, the Golden State has fallen into the bottom half of states in manufacturing sector employment growth, ranking 44th last year. Its industrial new job creation has lagged compared to gains from competitors such as Nevada, Kentucky, Michigan, and Florida. Even without adjusting for costs, no California metro ranks in the top 10, U- top 10 U.S. top 10 in terms of well-paying blue-collar jobs. But four, Ventura, Los Angeles, San Jose, and San Diego, sit among the bottom 10. For working-class consumers, green virtues have led to the rapid expansion of energy poverty in California, largely in the impoverished and hotter interior. This can also be seen in Europe, which has implemented green policies. As many as one in four Germans and three-fourths of Greeks have cut other spending to pay their electricity bills, which is the economic definition of energy poverty. A recent study in environmental economics concluded, for example, green energy policies hit rural communities in Germany much harder than cities, even though they are on par with big cities in terms of GHG production. So we're going to see this. This is part of the inflationary danger. You jack up people's energy bills, and I predicted this on January 19th, we're going to pay more for heating oil. We're going to pay more for gasoline. You jack up people's energy bills, they have to cut other things. And of course, the Price of that too? Higher food costs. So now they can't do anything else. They can't buy other stuff. You keep energy low and people can buy more things and they can spend more money on a vacation or to invest in other things they want to do or fix their house up or do things they need to do. But when you choke it out simply for some mythical stopping globing warming nonsense, global warming nonsense, this is what happens. People don't want it. People don't want it. And these blue-collar workers stuck in the middle are going to be part of this. In making their case for draconian energy policies, progressive politicians often cite green jobs as a substitute for positions that may be eliminated. President Biden commonly brushes away concerns about job losses with this appeal. Yet it's unlikely that oil riggers, geologists, welders, haulers, and machine tool operators now thriving in the South and the heartland 
We'd be too thrilled by the promise of green jobs advanced by the Biden administration spokespeople, since these pay far lower salaries, are usually shorter term, and far less likely to be unionized. Exactly right. This is what, look, when you look at the New Deal, the Green New Deal, you look at the New Deal and the uh, WPA, for example, or some of the other uh, things set up, one of the things, they were going to build schools and they were going to build post offices. Well, once you build that, what do you do? You can only have so many postal workers and these construction workers aren't going to be school teachers. So you're, you're, creating, you're building buildings that have no lasting impact. But if I got to go dig coal, well, I'm gonna, as long as that coal mine exists, I'm going to have a job. As long, if I have to get oil out of the ground, as long as the oil shale's there, as long as the oil's in the shale, I'm going to have a job. And that's all I care about because I can make six figures a year. Once I build the solar panel, it's built and it's going to sit there. Once I build the windmill, I mean, may have to go and oil the thing every now and then or put oil on it to keep it from freezing or, uh, you know, get it started once the birds smash into it all the time. I mean, but again, it's built. You're not going to get anything out of this. More serious still, Biden's team must address the fact that the key Democratic base, the big coastal core urban areas, has been fundamentally undermined by the pandemic, last summer's disorders, and a steady rise in crime. Critically, the shift to online work undermines the fundamental logic of dense core cities by driving talent to other regions. An estimated 42% of the 155 million strong U.S. labor force is working from home full-time during the pandemic, up from 5.7% in 2019. Experts like Stanford economist Nicholas Bloom suggest it will remain at least 20% of the workforce even after the pandemic ends. This is true. Uh, you have... Uh, you know, Industries like finance that just told the workers, just go home. You're just going to work from home. We don't have to pay for these big buildings anymore. Just go work and do from home. We can just Zoom everything. Why come in? The big cities face a huge challenge. One recent report from Upwork finds that between 14 and 23 million Americans are seeking to move to a less expensive and less crowded place. A recent Harris poll found that upwards of two in five urban residents are now considering a move to a less crowded place. The latest consumer survey from the National Association of Realtors found that households are looking for larger homes, bigger yards, access to the outdoors, and more separation from neighbors. Well, what you're seeing then is the get, we're, we're getting out of the city. Well, what's that going to do? Create urban blight? The tax revenue goes, and what's left is poverty. We saw this already. We've seen this, we've seen this story play out before. We've, we've been in this movie. So... This is what's going to happen. Leading tech firms, including Facebook, Salesforce, and Twitter, now expect a large proportion of their workforce to continue to work remotely after the pandemic. Some three-quarters of venture capitalists and tech firm founders, notes one recent survey, expect their ventures to operate totally or mostly online. The largest gains in tech workers since the pandemic began, according to a study by Big Technology, are in Madison, Cleveland, and the suburbs around New Haven, while New York City, San Francisco, Boston, and Chicago have taken the biggest hits. In some ways, it's, it's hilarious. But when you have a different kind of economy, this happens. Can Democrats cope? The big question facing President Biden will be how to address the country's emerging new geography. Suburbs, not big cities, are the critical territory for the future. In the decade before the pandemic, more than 90% of major metropolitan area growth took place in the suburbs and exurbs, a trend that exurbs, I'm sorry, which, a trend that is now apparently expanding. Policies boosting middle-class jobs, fixing roads, and improving schools and health care would appeal across sectional and geographic lines. But Biden will also be pressured by urbanists like Chicago 
The Chicago Council on Global Affairs refused to acknowledge the critical shifts in preferences and expect the new administration to service their, their needs first. Big city mayors like New, York, New York's Bill de Blasio look to Biden to bail out their often enormous debt. Others want him to force suburbs to accept more dense housing as a way to relieve themselves of their poor populations. They also expect him to invest massively in what is already failing mass transit and spend hugely on high-speed rail, even in the face of widespread cost overruns and painfully slow construction, most evident in California's botched approach. Right. The urban-rural split is the Democrats are the party of the city. We've seen this. They have their strongest support in the cities. And as people move out now, they do have the support of white suburbanites. But how's that going to work as these people keep moving out and they keep saying, oh my gosh, gas is going up. It's going to be more expensive for me to drive. Now, if they're, if they're completely woke and indoctrinated, if they're invested in the theology, they don't care because this is to save the environment. I've seen it. I saw a guy I knew from high school after Joe Biden won. He actually posted on, on social media, my kids are not going to have to worry about global warming anymore. He's a smart guy, but he posted this. It's just, it's a, it's a mental disorder. Progressives want the vast interior of the country to serve the green energy agenda popular in large metropolitan areas. After all, placing ultra-hot solar farms in the desert does not bother coastal elites and allows them to satisfy their energy virtue in ways that mean they can avoid looking at windmills. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, this is virtue signaling. According to a 2019 report by the Nature Conservancy, California's decarbonization requires as much as the 3 million acres of natural and agriculture areas to be turned over to the solar wind, far- solar wind farms. 3 million acres! We've got to plow down these farms to get solar panels and wind farms. I mean, I think back to Field of Dreams. All right, what are you doing? Plowing over your corn for a baseball field. Now Democrats just want to plow it over for a solar panel. A 2015 study by the Carnegie Institute for Science and Stanford University suggests that building enough solar power to reduce U.S. emissions by 80% in 2050 could require upwards of more than 27,500 square miles, destroying both farmland and unique natural habitats alone. 27,500 square miles of solar farms. You're going to look out your window and see solar panels everywhere. It's ridiculous. It's not likely that the interior states will accept such a diminished subsidiary role. For most of the past few decades, huge swaths of the country, most notably in the South and the Great Plains, have struggled to overcome a historic history of economic marginalization. They once could count on politically moderate Democrats like Byron Dorgan of North Dakota or John Brough in Louisiana to keep their interests in front of party leaders. Now blue state Democrats like Ohio's Marcy Kaptur or Tim Ryan decry what appears to be the abandonment of their constituents. Ultimately, the White House may realize that it's a fool's errand to deny geography. Instead, Biden can appeal to those parts of the country that are growing in both population and economic might. If he fails to do so, we could see the republic move closer to disunion than any time in the past 150 years. So Kotkin is saying this is an economic crisis more than anything else, and that's what led to this union in, 20, in 1860. It was an economic crisis. You had two competing economies fighting over power. What he's saying is what we're seeing in 2020, 2021, is the same exact thing. Two competing economies fighting over power. One is the blue-collar, we need jobs, we need manufacturing, we need energy jobs. The other is the woke, virtue-signaling elites on the coast that don't care. So it's more than just rural-urban, 
urban rural, excuse me. It's economics. It's blue collar versus I don't even know what. That's what we're seeing in America. That's what Kotkin says. I think this is uh, interesting. He's he's saying his his idea is neo feudalism. That's what it's going to create neo feudalism. Manufacturing feudalism is one part of it. So you're going to create feudalism by pushing this Green New Deal. We'll see. I don't know. But certainly, and tomorrow I'm going to talk about local action again. This is where local action is key. Being involved in your community and stopping some of this nonsense and getting your own affairs in order. Sweeping around your own back porch, getting your own affairs in order, and how you can do that. Face look, Looking at wokeism, political puritanism, energy, whatever it is. Yankees, whatever it is, how do you handle these things? We'll look at that in tomorrow's episode. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.